So we'll continue with Shantideva's text. Uh, the upcoming verses will, as they say, saka to us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the way he constantly expresses things in a way that is undeniably correct, um, but really our self-centered attitude does not like it at all. Yeah. Because it makes us responsible for our actions, and it makes us responsible for what happens to us. And it's so much nicer to just attribute everything to the external things and then I have the luxury of feeling sorry for myself and not doing anything, as if feeling sorry for ourselves made us happy. Yeah? Anybody happy when you feel sorry for yourself? No. But we love doing it. Isn't that crazy? We love doing something that we are not happy doing. Crazy. Okay, so to get us out of this mess, visualize sitting in the presence of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. We're looking at you with kindness and with delight because you're doing something virtuous now. And you're also surrounded by all the sentient beings who are very happy that you're doing something virtuous because then you'll be a nicer person and that will make them happy. Let's cultivate our motivation. So today might be a nice sunny spring day, and we may feel fine. Things are going fairly well for us. And yet, we have a body and mind under the influence, under the control of ignorance and afflictions, and karma. And so we're bound by birth, aging, sickness, and death. And in between all those, we can't get what we want. We get what we want and then are separated from it, or it disappoints us. And we don't get what we want, or we get what we don't want. <laughs> and all of this happens because we misapprehend how things exist. And our ignorance blinds us to the nature of reality. So sunny spring day or not, this is still our situation. And so it behooves us, while we have a good opportunity, 
to try and free ourselves from ignorance, afflictions, and polluted karma, and to develop wisdom and compassion. Because that is actually much more important than having things go our way in this lifetime. Because this lifetime goes by very quickly and all we take with us is our karma, our mental habits. So let's again dedicate ourselves to Dharma practice, especially the Bodhisattva practice headed towards full awakening so that we can repay the incredible kindness we've received from other living beings. So, we're still on the theme of ethical conduct and on chapter five about guarding alertness. Yeah. And so we talked about the importance of mindfulness, yeah, that keeps our mind focused on something that's virtuous or at least something that's neutral. And introspective awareness that checks up and makes sure our mind is still for focused that way and hasn't, you know, gone into distraction or in the case of meditation, um, laxity, sleepiness, and so on. So the first part of the chapter uh, talked about how all our suffering comes from the uh, crazed or an uncontrolled elephant of the mind uh, that you know, proliferates with afflictions and does all sorts of uh, actions that are often self-sabotaging that we experience the result of. And so how our misery depends on our mind. And then in the section we're on now, he's going into how uh, accomplishing the six perfections also depend on the mind. Uh, and so last time we talked about generosity because we could very easily think if we're perfecting generosity, then it should be that there's no more impoverished people. But that's impossible uh, when we can't control all the karma and external situations. So the perfection of generosity is not something outwardly making everybody rich. It's inwardly destroying our stinginess and miserliness and uh, opening our heart to feeling uh, very good about giving and practicing generosity. Okay, So when our heart is open like that and, uh, you know, for the bodhisattvas, giving their body is as easy as giving an apple, um, 
you know, then there's the perfection of generosity. So we don't start out with giving our our body. We start out with giving apples or carrots or, you know, a few dollars here or there or, you know, things that we can actually afford. And then slowly we increase our generosity, which is not just increasing the material amount that we give, but especially increasing the mind that uh, relishes the opportunity to give, that wants to give. Okay, so this uh, really brings to the forefront some of our very peculiar idiosyncrasies. So I lived in someone's house once, because I've spent a good part of my life house surfing as a nun, (laughs) yeah. And uh, her her basement was filled with boxes, okay? Many of them from the grocery store that you have when you move, then boxes from things that you buy, boxes galore, okay? And I offered to clean it out, you know, one day. And it was hard for her um, because, like, you give away the boxes and the next thing you know you're going to need them. So you should save them. Okay. So I have the same thing but on a, uh, a reduced size thing. Okay. So I save small containers, not big ones, small ones, you know. And it's hard to give them away unless I give them to somebody who can use them and put things in them. I don't want to throw them in the garbage, you know, but give them to somebody who can use them is okay. But other than that, you know, just little boxes and containers, because, you know, they're very practical and you never know when you're going to use them, okay? Uh, I mean, they're very useful. The, the plastic ones, when, when you have, uh, you know, your bottle of hand lotion is really low and there's still some at the bottom, but you can't get it out of the bottle with the squish top, then these little containers are so useful because you can cut your bottom, your bottle of hand lotion, put the lotion in the little containers, and there you're not wasting anything. Yeah. So, you know, you save a bunch of little containers, um, you know, in case various bottles of hand lotion run almost dry at the same time. You know, and you save little containers to put your loose herb tea in. Yeah, because loose herb tea tastes much better than herb tea in, in bags. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's true. And, um, uh, you know... Then for for putting paper clips in, yeah, and you know if if they need things in the barn to put screws in and stuff, I'm very happy to give them the small containers, but throw them in the garbage, no, okay. So I don't know if I was always like this, um, but definitely living in India in the seventies made me very aware of uh, how you can recycle many things in your life and made me appreciate things that people now throw out. Yeah, Uh, because India in the 70s, 
You know, what was really valuable is if you had, I used powdered milk because I couldn't afford the whole milk from the cows. But when you had finished a tin of powdered milk, that tin was gold because you could put other grains in it and then the bugs wouldn't get it. It wouldn't mildew during monsoon. You could even plant flowers in it. There were, most people had flowers and plants all in powdered milk tins. Okay. So, and plastic. Oh my goodness. You got a plastic bag. Unbelievable. You didn't just toss it in those days. You saved it because there were so few plastic bags and they were really useful. So in one way, I think that habit that I accrued is good, uh, even if a lot of people laugh at me. <laughs> okay? Uh, in another way, sometimes if you have too many small containers, it is a bit clumsy, you know? Um, but what I'm getting at here is the giving is to release that mind that fears that if we give, we won't have. So if I give my small containers, if my friend gave her big boxes, then we wouldn't have them when we needed them. Okay, so it's dealing with a mind, not just of attachment and miserliness, but a mind of fear. Okay, the mind of fear that if I give, I won't have. And that mind is completely the opposite of what the Buddha taught, which is when you give, you're creating the cause to receive. And that giving is the best cause for wealth. Okay, it's in Precious Garland, Nagarjuna said it. Yeah? But we forget that, and we think giving is the cause of poverty. But it's amazing. Uh, my experience is sometimes, because I've traveled quite a bit, when I'm with people who are really poor, they are often the most generous with what they have. Whereas people who are very wealthy often are not as generous. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe they're, they worked hard to get what they have and they're afraid if they give it, they won't have it anymore. Or maybe they're attached to the reputation of being wealthy. Yeah. But I remember when I, I lived in India, one time these two very old Tibetan nuns, uh, they lived in a shack, uh, down the hill from, from the temple. And, uh, you know, the shack was built out of displaced pieces of garbage, you know, and with the, you know, you had a good roof in those days. If you took one of the big ghee cans and could cut it up and then make a tin roof out of the ghee cans, you know, but they invited me to uh, come and, uh, you know, just have tea. 
And so I, I went in, the floor was dirt. Okay, mind you, this is in a climate with monsoon rains, and they lived on a hillside. Um, the floor was dirt. They had a, uh, a small kerosene stove, the kind that if you don't ventilate well could kill you. And, uh, and they had a tin full of kapse, which are the Tibetan, um, they're a cross between cookies and biscuits that they make for, for Tibetan New Year. So, and it's something really special, you know. And uh, they offered me tea and kapse, you know. They weren't clinging onto their kapse for themselves. They offered them to some Westerner who, you know, thought, well, kapse are okay, but chocolate chip cookies are better. Um, you know, but what I really appreciated in terms of, you know, of taste, the cookies, chocolate chip cookies are better. But in terms of the warm-heartedness, their copsate was much better. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we really, um, it's how we give, what our mind is doing that makes us generous. Okay, so giving isn't just giving material. That's one kind of giving. Okay, we also give protection. So when we have bugs in the winter, we take them out and we try and put them somewhere where they won't freeze to death. Okay, uh, we try and cover our buckets of water when they're outside so other bugs don't drown in them. And we definitely don't kill the animals that live together with us. Okay, no hunting at all. Um, no fishing. Some people would say, oh, terrible. You know, what are you doing? You should go fishing. It's a national sport. No, thank you. Um, okay, so... Uh, you, generosity of protection, generosity of love. Yeah, when somebody is down, when somebody needs encouragement, when someone's confused, reaching out and helping them. Yeah, giving them support or love or whatever they need. Um, and we get many people writing to us for for that kind of help. And then the generosity of the Dharma is the last kind. And that's said to be the best kind of generosity when you can share the Dharma with others. Yeah. So that means even sometimes you don't feel so well, but somebody asks to learn the Dharma, you help them. Yeah. If you're able to. If you're not able to, because you're sick, then it's something else. But you, it's not just a, a thing of, I don't like that person, or I don't feel like doing it. You know? And that's actually how I got involved in prison work in the 1990s, is someone, uh, some incarcerated person in, in Ohio wrote me a letter uh, asking for, you know, for some Buddhist books and saying he was interested. And so I have the Bodhisattva vows, so 
I sent him some books that started a correspondence. He told his friends, the word got out, and then now we have uh, quite a robust prison project with, what, a thousand people? Easily, over a thousand people, yeah, that we send things to. Uh, and what's interesting about this is I asked him how he got my name and to send me something. And he, he said he had sent out 25 letters to uh, Dharma centers, and I was the only one who answered. But when he checked his list of 25, I and I was at Dharma's Friendship Foundation at that time, were not on the list. So I don't know how I got his letter, but it was good. Yeah, because look what's grown out of that. So, uh, you know, generosity is the, is the willingness in our hearts yeah, to give. Instead of, well, I gave you this, so now you owe me a favor. Or I did this for you, now you owe me a favor. Yeah. I vacuumed the floor when it was your turn and you forgot. So now you've got to vacuum the floor for me. Yeah. So we do business. Our generosity is business. I help you only if you help me back. Okay. And so in that, there's no delight in giving. Yeah. There's, there's no delight in giving. Yeah. But what we want to really create, especially here at the Abbey, is an economy of generosity where we can give freely without charging people for things. And then people can give freely to us. And then everybody creates merit and everybody has a happy mind because they're able to give. Okay. So, so that's the kind of thing that we're aiming for. Yeah. But it's hard, isn't it? When we help somebody, the least they could do is help us back when we need help. And if they can't do that, the least they could do is give us a present. And if they can't do that, then they must say thank you. And if they don't say thank you, I am not helping them again. Because they're unappreciative. Whereas... When people send me things, do I write and say thank you? No. Why should I? Okay. That's one thing I think mothers, at least my mother, you know, mothers teach their kids. I don't know if my brother learned it, but, <laughs> but I learned it. You know, you receive a present and you write, back and you say thank you yeah so uh, they recently sent me some of the letters I wrote to my grandmother when I was 10 years old you know <laughs> yeah. but my mother made me sit down and write thank you letters and now it's like I have to you know I have to write and say thank you I don't feel comfortable just not doing it. Yeah. Or at least 
acknowledging that I received a gift. Yeah. Have you ever sent people gifts and then they don't even acknowledge that they received it? And you're left wondering, did they get it? Did they not get it? You know? So it's just kind of common decency, but it's also an act of generosity towards uh, the other person. And it's an act of um, recognizing how interdependent we are. Okay, so generosity, dependent on the mind, not dependent on the amount that you give. But if you have, then at least you should give. Like the old man I told you about last time, who was just going to visualize giving his brick of tea, even though he had it with him, okay, and had intended to give it beforehand. (laughs) Okay. So that's why verse 10 says, the perfection of generosity is said to be the thought to give all belongings, all beings, everything, together with the fruit, the result of such a thought, Hence, it is simply a state of mind. Then verse 11, we start with the perfection of uh, ethical conduct. Remember, when we're, the perfection of ethical conduct differs from just ethical conduct. The difference is the perfection of ethical conduct is motivated by bodhicitta. Plain ethical conduct can be, you know, because you feel it's the right thing to do, or you want a good rebirth, or whatever. Okay, so be aware of the difference between the two. Okay. Um, So nowhere has the killing of fish and other creatures been eradicated. For the attainment of merely the thought to forsake such things is explained as the perfection of ethical conduct. Okay, so in the world, many people still go fishing, they go hunting, um, you know, they butcher animals and and so on. Um, But if we thought that the perfection of ethical conduct was to make everybody else stop that, yeah, then there would be no way to fulfill the perfection of ethical conduct. So the meaning of the uh, um, perfection of ethical conduct is abandoning the wish to harm others, not just by killing them, but by stealing, having unwise sexual behavior, lying, um, harsh words, divisive speech, you know, um, idle talk, all these other ways that we harm others. living beings. And so having the the intention and the wish in our mind never to cause harm to anybody. Now, sometimes in the world, that's not possible. You're left with two decisions and both of them are bad. Okay? And, or you're left with five options and all five of them are rotten. Um, so it, it's, the thing of, of choosing the least rotten, <laughs> the least harmful, that is going to correspond with your mental state that has no wish at all to um, cause suffering or harm to anybody else. 
Sometimes in helping somebody, we initially, what we initially do harms them. Or at least they may think that we're harming them. Yeah. Um, you know, parents know this. When they uh, discipline children, you know, if your children has, have something that's harmful, yeah, even if they got it legitimately, you have to take it away from them because they may misuse it and may harm themselves or harm somebody else. Okay. And they may be unhappy about it. Yeah. So in order to, prevent harm to others, you may have to do things that initially people complain about, you know, or maybe even they, they hold a grudge against you. Yeah? But you're doing it because you actually care for them. And I'm sure we've all had those kind, we've been on the flip side of that, having somebody else um, take something of ours that we cherish because they know that it's not good for us, or somebody who corrects us and gives us feedback we don't like to hear, you know, because it's it's good for us and it's needed. Okay, so sometimes you know we have to give that kind of feedback to others. Sometimes we have to receive it, but the thing is, if it's given with a kind attitude, then it's still ethical conduct. Um, th- this comes, I mean, when you read the news, when you watch, listen to politics, um, th- this kind of thing comes a lot. There was a recent inc- incident in, I forget which city, maybe New York, I'm not sure, but an, an Asian woman, an older woman, 65, which actually is quite young now, um, uh, was walking down the street and uh, somebody pushed her and then started kicking her. And there were two uh, door guards at some hotel or something, like right outside, and they saw this happen and they closed the doors. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing we have to counter, you know, when we have the opportunity to help, to help. But it's, it's difficult sometimes to know what to do to help. Right now, the, the, um, trial of, uh, Derek Chevin is happening. He's the guy who sat on or put his knee on, uh, George Floyd's neck. It comes out now. It's, nine minutes and 26 seconds, something like that. It's longer than we thought before, okay? And the people who are testifying, I haven't followed it very carefully, but just read the top kind of things. It's excruciatingly painful for them to uh, to testify, yeah? And... Uh, just relive that experience of watching what happened. So you can see what happened when even one person doesn't keep ethical conduct. And then you have this, there, uh, 
They called to testify one woman who was uh, a first responder. She was off duty. She was walking by. And she went over and she said, let me take his pulse. You know, let me help. The police would not let her near George Floyd. Yeah. And she was wanting to help. They were interfering with it. Okay. So... Um, she feels now, she feels quite bad because she couldn't help him. The boy who was, it was a teenage boy, I think he was 18 at the time, who took the $20 bill that in the, in the shop, you know, that he thought may be counterfeit. That kid now feels so guilty. You know, he was just doing what his employer said you know, go out and tell him to come back in the store, and, oh, he doesn't want to call the police. His employer told him. But he says, if I had just taken that bill, George Floyd would be alive. So even though he's not responsible in the least for Floyd's death, still, you know, he feels bad for having done what he did innocently that resulted in that. So... Um, so the themes, there's several themes from this. First is, um, don't feel guilty if you didn't have the intention to harm. And if you were thinking clearly, if you were being negligent or lazy, that's something else. But if you were thinking clearly and did what you could, you know, there was another, uh, teenage girl who was there, she testified. I think she was the one who took some of the video. And, you know, she she was shooting the video. She was yelling, you know, at the cops to stop it. But she feels guilty for not interceding. How is a teenage girl going to pull a huge policeman off of somebody? Yeah. But she feels bad about not doing something. Yeah. But it's, it's not, I mean, what she, could she have done? Yeah. Actually, what she did was good. She videoed the whole thing, you know, which has brought so much uh, racial awareness, the awareness of racial discrimination to the country. Yeah. But so, so don't feel guilty when, you know, you can't control the whole situation and make make somebody stop harming. But also, don't use your position to justify harming. And this is one of the things, um, one of the inmates I, I correspond with, we, we write back and forth a lot about racism and power dynamics and things. And he, his recent uh, letter, he was saying that many people justify racism by uh, just following the rules in the institution that they represent. And the rules do not specifically mention people of one race or the other, but they're definitely designed to harm minorities. Okay. And so he was commenting, and this is the thing, uh, why most police officers um, 
when they wind up killing somebody, why they are not holding accountable for the death because they're giving immunity for being police officers because sometimes, as the quote-unquote logic goes, they're in dif difficult situations and they have to think quickly. And, uh, you know, it's either they think it's either their life or the other person's life, so they shoot. Yeah, but and then they don't get convicted, even when it's quite obvious that the other person was not harming them. Like in the case of George Floyd, I mean, there was no way he was harming the cops. Yeah, there was another incident that happened a few years ago. This one really broke my heart. There was some guy staying in a hotel, and I think he may have had like a toy gun or something like that. And, uh, and somebody saw it through a window, called the cops, came in. He was black. You know, they told him to get down on the floor. So he was on the floor, crawling along, begging for his life, begging them not to shoot. But the cop was, you know, had adrenaline pumping and was terrified. And even though the guy had put away the plastic gun, you know, the cop was, was saying, uh, don't move, but, but also come here. And it wound up shooting him, you know, because he, put his arm in a certain position, and the cop thought he was pulling a gun. I mean, th there was the one, remember the guy who was standing on his uh, doorstep one night in New York a few years ago? I forget his name. Yeah. Also an immigrant, black, and the cops fired at him. He was holding his wallet, I think, or a cell phone, not a gun. You know, so there's so many instances of things like this, yeah? So, um, you know, to try and I think part of our practice of ethical conduct is to try and speak out about these things. It doesn't mean hating the cops and it doesn't mean blaming the cops. My perspective is, you know, I can understand how the cops are scared when you have as a citizenry uh, that is armed. Yeah, I think it's the gun industry, yeah, that sets up a lot of this. Yes, there is racism, definitely, yeah. But what makes the cops skittish is that you have armed citizenry, yeah. Um, so I could go on and on and on, but I think you, you got my point, okay? That ethical conduct is the wish not to harm, okay? So whether you're a suspect of something, just go along with the, with them. Don't talk back, you know, be polite. You look skeptical. Um, yeah. The, the chief critique of that logic is that it blames the victim for talking back or doing this or that. Yeah. And it's, it's true. It blames the victim. Like women get blamed for how they look. The rape was their fault. No, 
It's not that. But if you know that other people have uncontrolled minds, help them out a lot. Help them out even a little bit, you know, and don't antagonize them. Yeah, that's what my mother taught me. It was, I think, pretty good advice. Yeah, sure, you can talk back, but what do you get out of talking back? Does the other person hear you? Do they listen to you? Do they change their mind? Or do they, in return, get more antagonistic? Okay. Now, you can understand how, why, how and why people would talk back, especially if you're in a minority where you are usually afraid to express yourself because chances are somebody will harm you back. And this is your chance to stand up to power and authority. I can fully understand why people would talk back. But I also know that it's counterproductive. And it doesn't legitimize what the person in authority does. But you can, you know, you, you have a choice at that time. You can uh, feel your own power by talking back. Or you can preserve your own life by being quiet. So it's your choice, you know, what, what people value more. It's an awful situation. It definitely should not be like this. But as we know, in samsara, should and should not does not matter for beings. Yeah. When you're in a situation and karma is ripening and multiple causes and conditions brought it together, You can't go back in the past and undo all those causes and conditions. You have to deal with what is. Yeah, we'll we'll come see you when they throw you in the can. (laughs) I hope they never do. (laughs) Yeah, I hope you learned from that. (laughs) okay okay so verse 12 unruly beings are as unlimited as space they cannot uh, possibly all be overcome however if I overcome thoughts of anger alone this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes Okay, so this is about uh, anger, the perfection of uh, patience or the perfection of fortitude. Okay, unruly beings are as unlimited as space. Yeah, that's what we were just talking about a minute ago. You know, other sentient beings are unruly. Even some people who are mostly um, kind, sometimes they lose it and they are unruly, you know. You, you never know what's what's going to be. And samsara is filled with them. And in fact, believe it or not, other people think we're the unruly ones. Now, I know that they're all wrong. Yeah. But maybe it's, it's good to consider sometimes that we appear unruly to others. Okay? Okay. And we cannot possibly overcome all of them. What are you going to do? 
You think somebody has unruly behavior, you're going to go around, tell all of them to stop it? Are they going to listen? Okay. That doesn't mean you ignore the unruly behavior, you know, if you, if you can help them and give them some feedback, if you have that kind of relationship with them, then you do give that help. But to think that we can control other people and that our words of wisdom are going to instantly transform them, forget it. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. As you realize, as soon as you start to give Dharma talks. <laughs> However, if I overcome thoughts of anger alone, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. So I can't control the external objects and people and make them change their behavior. But if I overcome my own anger, then... It's equivalent to vanquishing all foes. That doesn't mean that if I don't get angry, they're going to stop harming me. But it means if I don't get angry, my mind will stop making them into enemies and blaming them and retaliating and uh, making myself completely miserable because I'm so mad. Okay. Anybody ha here happy when they're mad? You may feel powerful when you talk back. You're feeling powerful. When you slug somebody, you're feeling powerful. Yeah. But does feeling a powerful always bring you what you want? Or does it often bring you what you don't want? Okay. So again, I'm not saying, you know, don't stand up to power and just sit there and cower in your own shell because you're afraid of other people's anger. I'm not saying that. I mean, what John Lewis and the, the people who crossed the uh, Edmund Petraeus Bridge, I can never pronounce that properly, what they did, you know, they weren't angry. They stood up to power but they were not angry. And the as, who was it? One of the, the ministers later said, the cops, the troopers had the power. No, the troopers had the weapons, but John Lewis and the protesters had the power. Yeah? And they did. I mean, that event is what brought the civil rights into people's living rooms where they had to watch peaceful people getting beaten and bit by dogs and water hosed, you know, on the six o'clock news. And that's what really started to change things. So I'm not saying you don't stand up. You stand up, but you're not angry. You don't make those people into enemies. Yeah. And best is if you can have compassion for those people. Yeah. When I was in Tibet and we were going one day to uh, Gandan Monastery, which is 
way up on a hill or a mountain, I don't know, where, where it stops being a hill and starts being a mountain. But you have to go up, and it's like this and this and this and this and this. And, you know, it's really hard to get up there. And I was thinking of the PLA soldiers who went up uh, during the uh, 70s, late 60s and, and early 70s, during the Cultural Revolution, to destroy the monastery. And they did a very good job of destroying Gun and Monastery. I mean, it was really in shambles. And, uh, you know, the monks, to because the, the statue of Jason Kappa was, th was there, his body had not deteriorated after he died. So he was still sitting there in meditation position. And as I heard it, his nails were still growing. But the monks had to take his body out and burn it before the PLA soldiers could get there, which must have been horrible for the monks to have to do that. Yeah. But I, as I was thinking, and, you know, the PLA soldiers, they were young boys from impoverished families who joined, you know, the army so that they could send some money home to their families who were poor. Yeah. They didn't hold anything against the Tibetans. They were just, you know, joined the army to survive and were doing what the officers told them. Yeah. When they were doing it, they may have gotten into some kind of look how powerful we are, we can destroy other people's stuff kind of mood, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, but as we were trying to get up the hill, I thought of the amount of energy that these people put into destroying the Dharma. Yeah. And because uh, when I went to, to Tibet, it was 1986? No, 87. 87. And, uh, you know, we, we saw broken stupas, destroyed monastery, burnt scriptures. Um, you know, uh, it was really painful to see much of that. And that was even, you know, 10 years after the, the Cultural Revolution was over. Um, but you saw that kind of stuff. But when I thought of those, of those young boys who became the soldiers, I couldn't hate them. I hated the action that they did. But I saw them as being under the control of their own karma, being born impoverished, in a country where the government was rounding up everybody and, you know, making them join the army and, you know, and then sending them off to destroy Tibetan culture, to destroy Chinese culture. Yeah, the communists, they didn't just reach havoc, wreak, wreak, wreak havoc on the Tibetans, but also on the Chinese themselves. And, you know, you just I just had some compassion for these kids because they were trapped in that situation doing what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, if we really think about it, so often the people 
that we find easy to hate, if we look at their conditions, we could see that if we were raised in those conditions, we might act like them too. So even if you take our former president, yeah, if and you may really disagree with his policies or his behavior, but if you were born in that family with those kind of values and that kind of pressure, if you were born with that kind of karma behind you and so much attachment in your mind, would you have turned out any differently being raised in that family? Maybe you would have turned out a little bit differently for the better, or you may have turned out differently for the worse. Yeah. So when we think like that, you know, we consider people's situations, then uh, we see that that we don't have to make them into despised enemies. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, the Buddha is very clear in the, in the uh, Dharmapada that hatred alone never, is never overcome by hatred. It's overcome by love. Yeah. Okay, so here, you know, this verse is saying, if we overcome anger, then it's equivalent to, va- equivalent to vanquish all foes, because then we can call out somebody's behavior without hating the person who did the behavior. Okay, so this is important. You disagree with their politics, but you don't hate them as individuals. Okay. And then verse 13, this is a very famous one. Where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? Yet wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. Okay, so there's thorns and glass and all sorts of things all over the earth. I mean, if we walked barefoot just outside of this building, it would hurt, yeah, on the on the gra- gravel. So we could either put we could either put concrete all over the earth everywhere. Yeah, or in this Santi Deva, that he didn't know about concrete, so he just said leather. Okay. But you could put leather or concrete or whatever you want all over the earth, or you could wear a pair of shoes. And how would you ever get enough concrete or leather to put all over the earth? You know? So that is like that analogy is like trying to make everybody else change and be what you want, or trying to destroy all the people you disagree with all the people you think are harmful, all your enemies and foes. Yeah, that would be like putting leather or concrete over everything. You take care of the situation by changing the outside conditions. Okay, and how are you ever going to do that? Yeah, 
Yeah. Where are you going to are you going to buy all the concrete in the world which still isn't enough to put it all over the earth? Okay. Or you can put leather on the soles soles of your feet. So we try not to wear leather shoes. So we put other kinds of material and then thank goodness now there's lots of different material for the soles of our shoes. Okay. So what it means is you either try and change the external world or you protect your own mind. Okay. Which do you have more power over? The external world or the goings on in your own mind? Okay. Now we've been taught by society to change the external world. But we aren't we are hardly ever asked to look at our own anger and see what we can do about that. Okay? And when people ask us to look at our own anger or to assess again our our interpretation of an event implying that perhaps we're not seeing it correctly we get furious you don't understand me yeah you're blaming me you don't realize what this other person did okay now it may be true that that the, the person who is calling us out on our own anger doesn't understand the harmful action that the other person did towards us. But the point here is not who is right and who is wrong. Because you can be right all you want and still be miserable. Yeah. So what it's saying is, if you want to be happy, look at your own mind and banish the anger, the resentment, the grudge-holding, the blame, the fault-finding, the judgment, the spite, the fury, the outrage. You know, there's, we have so many words in English for it, don't we? You know, even going down to irritation and annoyance up to, you know, wrath and ferocity. Um, look at those mental factors and how they arise in your life and see if they actually bring you the happiness you want. See if they resolve the conflict you're having with the other party. Okay. Case in point, yeah, we went into Afghanistan in two, 2001, right? Yeah, this is 20 years later. Yeah, lots of killing, lots of anger. Has the situation changed much? No. Lots of death, lots of, of trauma. Yeah, hasn't changed much. Okay, 
So we can get very angry and try and change outside, but changing outside doesn't always change the situation for the better. Hmm. So it's, it's, you know, we need incredible skill and we need to really understand well the people we're dealing with. If we don't understand them, you know, and how they think, then it's, you know, it's difficult to resolve a situation. Yeah? But many times, if we uh, are understanding and kind in a difficult situation, it keeps the situation from getting all blown up out of proportion, and it stops the anger right there. Yeah. We got an email the other day from a friend of ours. She may even be listening to this. And uh, she was, uh, was in the um, Boulder community where they had the mass shooting a week or two ago. It was across the street from her apartment building where she lived. And the whole community is traumatized. So she was driving a few days ago, and she said she must have just, like, fell asleep for the shortest moment. Have you ever done that? Yeah, in teachings, I'm sure you have. Um, you know, you fall asleep for the shortest moment before you wake yourself up. And she was driving, and she jammed on the brakes, and she still hit the car in front of her. So she was really flustered and upset about it. But, and you know how it is when people rear-end somebody? The person who's rear-ended can be, get furious. And they know that they're right, because whenever you rear-end somebody, it's not their fault, it's your fault. Okay? But she said the guy that she rear-ended was so kind and he just said, it's not a big deal, you know, we'll fix it. He didn't scream at her, he didn't yell at her. And she said that was just, he, she was so appreciative because she was already, you know, and had, having anxiety about what was gonna happen and feeling bad about what happened. But he was so kind. And so that's the difference between, you know, acting kind and an understanding towards somebody, and blowing up and creating a scene and creating enemies and so on. Yeah. We have one other friend who told me she was in Seattle and somebody rear-ended her, and it was a young person who was very upset about it, you know. And, uh, and they prayed together while they were waiting for the police to come, <laughs> you know. And I think, you know, what a beautiful thing to do instead of anger and upset. Okay. So putting leather on the shoals, soles of our feet. It's like, you know, you, you go someplace and you have roommates and you're not used to having roommates and your roommate snores, or they breathe too loud, or they toss and turn, and you go, I can't sleep, you're making too much noise, you know, kind of 
stop snoring, stop breathing. Oh, I don't really mean that, but just breathe quieter. You know, don't twist and turn. Don't you realize you're disturbing me? I can't sleep. And and taking it all out on the other person as if they were deliberately trying to keep you up. Yeah. Do you think any snores deliberately try and keep you from sleeping? Yeah, I thought you would. Um, <laughs> so if you have that mind, you're going to be mighty unhappy. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, and, you know, because what, what can the other person do? Yeah, they, they're not doing it deliberately. What's quite interesting is some people come here and they say it's so quiet at the Abbey that they can't sleep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but in, in all these kinds of situations, we, our first thing is always you change. The external situation must change. And if it doesn't change, it's your fault. And not only is it your fault, are you caught, you know, you're behind it, but you deliberately want me to suffer. Yeah. We impute a motivation on other people that we have no idea of knowing if it's true or not. Even if they deliberately did that to make us suffer, what's the use of getting angry? Yeah. So we get angry, even they didn't do, do it deliberately, we're still angry. Even if they did want to help us, how does getting angry help? Yeah. We can still talk to the other person and be assertive, but we can also listen to their concerns. Yeah. So not being angry is not equivalent to being passive and letting a bad situation continue. There's other ways of dealing with situations besides blame and fault-finding and accusation and imputing horrible emotion, uh, motivations on somebody else. Yeah, and this is what nonviolent communication is trying to help us to get to. You know, active listening. There's many different kinds of these programs that are really helpful, you know, that we don't need anger to counteract difficulties or bad situations. We can still act forcefully, but you can act forcefully without being angry. And this is the thing, is people think that if you don't get angry, then you're doomed by being passive, and the bad situation is going to continue. That is a false assumption. Yeah? There may be a bad situation if you go to one of the persons involved and you explain to them what's going on. Yeah? And you explain in a nice way, you may convince them. And they'll, they'll use their power to stop the situation. You may have to speak very assertively, very forcefully, but without being angry. 
and counteract the situation. So anger is not necessary in order to, you know, stop harm. And instead, when we get angry, then it just inflames the other, the other person more. Yeah? Okay, so somebody's going to say, well, then, yeah, what, like you just said before, it sounds like victim blaming. Okay? It's not victim blaming. Yeah? The victim wants to be happy. When we blame other people and hate them for what they, you know, their behavior caused to us, are we happy? Yeah? We get a lot of mileage out of playing the victim. Yeah? Look what these other people did to me. No wonder I'm so messed up. You know, don't hold me responsible for any of my behavior because it's all because of other people, what they did to me or what they're doing to me now or the whole social situation I'm, I'm in. Yeah? So we get mileage out of being a victim, but we also give away our power when we make ourselves victims. Because when we make ourselves victims, then we're saying we have nothing we can do to change the situation. It all depends on other people changing or on the external situation changing. I have no power. It or they must change. We make ourselves into victims And then we give up. And we take delight in blaming other people because then we don't have to lift a finger to try and remedy the situation ourselves. Yeah. And then we get the privilege of feeling sorry for ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I know I am an expert at pity parties. Yeah, I can organize one for you on short notice. (laughs) Yeah, send out uh, invitations, you know, get the balloons, everything for a pity party. I'm very good at it. Yeah. But I've learned that it doesn't really get me anywhere. Yeah. Whereas if I have to look and say, what's going on in my mind? Okay, I'm angry. I'm upset. Okay, that is something I can deal with. Okay. But what's very interesting, too, is we have to learn how to explain things properly. Instead of, you made me angry which means it's the other person's fault that I'm angry. I got angry when you did this. I'm taking responsibility for my anger. Okay. What the other person did is their business. They created the karma. They're going to have to bear the results of that. Okay. But I'm creating my own karma. 
And if I live a life where I'm continually blaming other people, accusing them of this, that, and the other thing, yeah, I'm creating a lot of karma, you know, motivated by anger and malice. That's not going to bring me good results in future lives. It's not bringing me good results now because I'm quite unhappy. Yeah. So this is something to really think about. And it's difficult to understand because we are so push button. Somebody does something we don't like, just this, we're angry. We're upset. We're blaming. Yeah. So it, we really have to, you know, realize that this situation happened. I have a choice of how I'm going to feel. I may feel like I don't have a choice because I'm so familiar with being offended and upset and angry that it comes like this. So I may feel like I don't have a choice, but there is a choice in that situation. And I have to create the space to take that choice. Yeah. So it, it's difficult, but do we have another option for changing our experience in the world? Is there another option? Yeah. You can tweet and ruin everybody's reputation because of your tweets and accuse them in three, throughout, what is it, throughout 3,000 worlds. They talk of your faults throughout the 3,000 world systems. Okay, so you can tweet, you know, the whole world, which isn't actually so big when compared to 3,000 world systems, you know? And you can blame everybody and ruin their reputation and make them terrified of you so that they all come shivering back. <laughs> what, what, do, what do you want us to do, Master? But what kind of karma are you creating? And are you happy? We had perfect example of somebody using that strategy for happiness for four years. That person is one of the most suffering people we can think of, despite their wealth and so on, or lack of it, it may seem. Status, you know, despite all that, tremendously unhappy. Okay? So this is the kind of thing that Shantideva is trying to get at. Okay, maybe we can have a few questions now. We did three verses again. <laughs> but I hope it's paying off going slow, you know, to make us really uh, think about what's going on. When I was at uh, the library in Dharamsala 19 years ago, Geshe Sonam Rinchen told a story from the sutra. I don't remember which one. I don't know where my book is that I wrote this in. But he was sharing this story about these people in India that went to the king in this certain 
place, and they were begging him, you know, it's so unfair, there's only a few rich people, they have all the wealth, look at all these poor people, we outnumber you many, many times, can you please do something about this? So finally the king did, and he took all the money from the wealthy people, and he spread it out evenly among all the people in the kingdom. And then according to Geshe Sonam Rinchen, it wasn't too long afterwards that everyone sort of sifted out back to their original places. <laughs> and the, I never forget that story. Mm. And I saw this happening when I used to live in Alberta. Um, there was a certain North American Indian tribe and their reserve land, they had the mineral rights. So they were getting mm. enormous wealth from the oil and gas. And what they were doing was very tragic. Every time someone turned 18, they would get tens of thousands of dollars. So these kids would see the former examples of the 18-year-olds. They'd go out and buy a big, expensive truck. They would party day and night. They would buy their friends gifts, which is some form of generosity. Mm -hmm. But it ended up with people having drug and alcohol abuse problems. Mm -hmm. The money was gone in no time. And often the truck was ruined and there was injury or death. Yeah. So you see, it's, it's a thing of changing minds, isn't it? Yeah. Have to change the mind. Yeah. Uh, someone is asking for tips on how to deal with a person that always acts like the victim. Um, so they give the example that you just ignore him, but that when there's complaints, but you don't want to stop having a relationship and you want to help. So is it better to ignore them or to try and help and understand them or? Okay. Yeah, we always have questions about what we should do with other people to make them change. Yeah. So it's interesting to ask ourselves first, why does being around complaining people bug us? It bugs me. I can't stand people who constantly complain. Or I can't stand their, I should say, I can't stand their constant complaining. The people have Buddha nature, but their complaining doesn't. <laughs> okay? So it's, um, you know, it's an interesting question. Why do I get so, when I'm around people who complain? Yeah. Um, it's because, yeah. I say, I feel they are shifting the responsibility for their actions to me. That is not a feeling. Feeling their uh, shifting responsibility to me, that's not a feeling. That's a thought. I have that thought that they're shifting responsibility for their feelings to me and expecting me to do something about it. That's my thought, my thought. Maybe their fault, maybe not their fault. It doesn't, uh, it may be their thought, it may not be their thought, it doesn't matter. What matters is it's my thought and I buy into it and I get irritated because of it. Okay? If I don't feed that thought, then I can act differently towards the other person. Yeah, they're complaining, and I say, let's go out and do something. 
Yeah. I change the topic. I change the situation. Huh? Or they're complaining and I say, you're an intelligent person. What ideas do you have for, for how to deal with this? And then maybe they start thinking about it themselves. And then we can actually have a good discussion about it. Oh, you're doubtful. Yeah. Because they are inherently complaining people who are hopeless. But the, the worldviews contradict. They might actually think that their feelings are the other person's fault. And until that worldview shift changes, the uh -huh. conversation I've found and experience does not uh -huh. tend to go well or anywhere. Mm. Okay. Then what have you found works? I choose my friends better. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, you know, a way to solve it. You choose your friends better. Yeah. Yeah. Changing the topic and changing the situation, you know, they do work well. They're good techniques to have. Yeah. And you can try it and, you know, and do it. And so often the other people don't even notice it. Mm -hmm. Now he's not going to talk to me anymore because I'm so good at complaining. And he has to choose his friends better. Other, is there another question? Uh, someone else is asking, um, is any, any comments on dealing with the causes of anger, upset, or fear within oneself that are so deeply ingrained um, in the subconscious that they're barely recognizable? Is patience the best strategy with that? If What was the is, last one? Is patience the best strategy to deal with that? It depends what you mean by patience. You know, um, if... if it, so the question is, you usually respond with anger and blame, and it's so deeply ingrained that you don't even notice it? Yeah. Well, obviously, to ask that question, you're noticing it. Because you know you have it. So maybe you don't realize all of its instances, but you see that there's some tendency towards anger and blame. And so you you work with those situations that you realize that come up. And when we get to chapter six, yeah, just the next chapter, isn't it? Then Shantideva gives us one antidote to anger after another one. If you can't wait for chapter six, read His Holiness's book, Healing Anger, or my book, Working with Anger, and it contains, you know, what His Holiness, uh, what Shantideva said. Yeah. So you just deal with what you can notice and you work on it gradually. And as you do that, you see more um, because you begin to resolve a lot of the old issues. Okay. Then we'll close now.